but also B, how the population is not growing rapidly anymore and how actually the problem of the future is going to be too few people, not too many. I just think we mustn't delude ourselves that there's a policy silver bullet and that the government can solve it all. If the background culture priorities is such that people actually are not that interested in having children. And ultimately, however much I preach and rant, I'm not going to make much difference. If societies like the Italians are not interested in reproducing themselves, then there will be no Italy as we've understood it and no Italians. So welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Morland, who's UK's leading demographer. Paul has authored several books, including his most recent, Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity and Ten Numbers. And he joins us today to discuss the global impacts of a changing population. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul Moreland, for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I think the mainstream view about demography is best portrayed by the 2006 movie Idiocracy with Lou Wilson and Maya Rudolph, where there is a catastrophic environmental issue, awful standards of living, and major overpopulation that is combined with a decline in intelligence. As UK's leading demographer, is this an accurate portrayal? Well, I can't say I've seen the film. I'm not actually a very regular attender of the cinema, but I did actually go and see Barbie the other night, which is, I think, the first film I've seen in about three years. I'm not quite sure why I went. So maybe it's got some pronatalist messaging in it. No, that's completely wrong. Yes, we're 8 billion, and we were only a billion, say, back at the time of Queen Victoria, or early in her reign. But we're actually eating better, we're living better, we're living longer, and we're actually doing so in the most advanced countries with less and less impact on the planet. The carbon emissions per capita in the UK have more or less halved in the last 20, 30 years. There are so many metrics along which you can say our lives are getting better, and with the fantastic technology that is now available and which is rolling out, we can do that without damaging the planet and leaving lots and lots of space for nature. That is a very outdated view, but there's always been a debate between Malthusians and anti-Malthusians, going back to Thomas Malthus, and Malthus was writing 200 years ago, and he was saying, look, if a, if, if a couple has four children, say, which is not that many, they have four, each go doubles and doubles and doubles, you'd have had billions of people um, thousands of years ago. Why did that not happen? Because if we don't fight and kill each other if disease doesn't get us, the carrying capacity of the world simply cannot take that many people. There's this massive expansion in life, but there's this fundamental constraint it bangs up against. Some people will just die of starvation on the egg. That's the Malthusian mindset, and really that was true for most of history. With the Industrial Revolution, with the growth of science, with the burgeoning of human genius. What we've done is two things. First of all, we've massively expanded our productive base. And secondly, we fantastically improved our technology for controlling our fertility. So Malthus has kind of been doubly turned on his head. First of all, we're not expanding that fast anymore. And more and more of the world has got a problem of fertility, which we'll probably come on to talk about. Lots of countries have got falling populations, and many more will soon have And then on the other hand, we're fantastically more productive and able to make better use of fewer of your resources. So I don't know if you're aware of the debate, say, between Paul Ehrlich and Julian Simon. Um, Simon won the bet, and I'm 100% in the Simon camp. 
the Simon Camp is the human brain is the ultimate resource. And actually, if we want to keep on being inventive and creative, we'd better keep our societies relatively young. And as they age and shrink, that's a society in which in, in innovation, innovativeness, and creativity is likely to plummet, not a society with a reasonably large number of young people and a modest level of great. It's interesting to see Brugat Mal, Malthusian kind of ideology, and he wrote his first pamphlet in 1798, talking about this, and it seems like in today's day and age, in 2023, a lot of people disregard these quote-unquote old white men, but then they, they find it interesting which ones they choose to hold on to, like, how does it most of his theory's been basically debunked, and you're talking in the 1700s, you know, like, it's not like he wrote this a few decades ago. Well, you're absolutely right on the dead white male. The other dead white male who gets an extraordinary pass, of course, is Karl Marx, one of the most bigoted, anti-Semitic, racist people you could dig up. But both Marx and Malthus, by the way, they completely opposed their math. Marx, a later generation, hated Malthus and said, actually, Malthus is talking about natural constraints, which are really just the constraints of capitalism. There's a really interesting debate there. They were both very, very clever, very persuasive and very insightful. But the world moves on. So, as I said, the, Malthus's insight that you have this burgeoning growth in life and this absolute constraint and that so much can be explained by the unstoppable force meeting the uh, unmovable object. It's so simple and it's so brilliant. He, 1798, you're absolutely right, then he wrote further versions of his pamphlet, which were more empirical and less sort of parsimonious and theoretical. But it is a brilliant insight. And in fact, as I've said elsewhere, Darwin could not have got going had he not had that insight, because Darwin then said, all oh, of life is like this. All of life doubles and triples and quadruples, but all of life is meeting this constraint. Those are the conditions under which a small advantage genetically can be selected for. So actually, Malthus was not only very interesting in his own right, but also an inspiration for Darwin and, and all modern biology in a sense. But as is it with Malthus, it's not that he was wrong. The fascinating thing is that just as he was writing at the end of the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, conditions were fundamentally changing. What's interesting is the way that people have constantly come back to a Malthusian outlook. For example, at the end of the 19th century, we'd, we'd have this enormous growth of food capacity of the world. Think of the prairies being settled, the huge growth of the meat industry in Argentina, and Chicago, and railways, and steamship, all this food. But it was beginning to slow down, and we'd have a huge population expansion. And then the question was, have we just met a new Malthusian frontier? Have we had all this progress? The population's grown to the new frontier, and now we're going to have that same problem again. And then you have the genius of the Harbour-Bosch process and another quadrupling or doubling of agricultural capacity. So on the one hand, we've got this human genius constantly to reinvent and rediscover, which you can't blame Malthus for not understanding. Because up to his day, technological progress had been fairly slight. And then on the other hand, we even if we didn't have that, the, po the end of pop human population growth is in sight. Annual population growth was about 2% globally. It's now below 1%. I think it's continuing to fall. More and more countries are going sub-replacement. Fewer and fewer young people are having children. So I think you can excuse Malthus in 1798. And you can excuse people at the end of the 19th century saying, oh, brilliant inventiveness, but have we now hit a new barrier? Are we going to have problems? 
I think today there is no excuse, A, for not understanding how human inventiveness gets us out of so many tight corners, but also, B, how the population is not growing rapidly anymore, and how actually the problem of the future is going to be too few people, not too many. The UN estimates that the global population will reach 10.4 billion people by 2100, with the vast majority of that growth coming basically from Africa. One, do you believe that the UN will actually get this prediction correct? And then secondly, what kind of impact will Africa have on the rest of the world? In your in your pub, you say, uh, quote, population expansion is Africa's greatest opportunity and its greatest challenge, quote. So will it be 10 billion? I mean, one thing that's clear is it's not going to be much above 10 billion. And that when we get there, it's going to be the peak. And that we may get there earlier than the end of the century. And that the peak may be a bit lower. And an awful lot will depend on the trajectory of African fertility, which is a complicated business. I mean, in a nutshell, North Africa, already the fertility rates are three or below. Southern Africa, South Africa and its neighbours also have got their fertility rates down a lot. A lot of countries in East Africa have made enormous progress, big countries like Kenya and Ethiopia. The real question mark is over the zone of Central and Western Africa, where the fertility rate is still high, and how quickly will that come down. But regardless of how quickly it comes down, the population of Africa is going to grow enormously because there is a small older population, a large pyramid, and you have something called demographic momentum, which means even if you get your fertility rate down to two, when you've got lots and lots of young women having children and not many old people dying, a life expectancy expanding. So that's that stage of the demographic transition where you get a lot of growth. So Africa is going to become much bigger on the world sea. My argument, both based on the human tide, my historical book, and tomorrow's people, is that population matters. And that it's very unlikely that Africa is going to go from accounting perhaps for 7% of humanity to perhaps a third or heading for 40% of humanity. And it won't be a very different world. Now, how will it be a different world? The point I always make is that demography is not all of destiny. You cannot read from demography a certainty as to how the world will shape. But you do know that you need to understand the demography to understand the outlines of the way the world could go. I can't envisage a world which is 30 to 40% Africa, where African countries are not more economically important, more geostrategically important, and Africa is going to become much more a centre of what's going on in the world. And Europe is going to have a shriveling population. Lots of the rest of the world is going to have a declining population. Africa will be burgeoning. Africa will be young. Africa will have many opportunities. Whether it will take this successfully, whether this could lead to war or peace, to famine or great prosperity, is very much in the hands of the Africans. But Africa is going to become much more part of the human story in the next hundred years, and it won't be a kind of backwater, which it has been for much of the last hundred or two hundred or even five hundred. You mentioned population collapse, and the mainstream people always talk about overpopulation, and it seems like the main reason they bring up overpopulation or concern is climate change or carbon emissions. Now, if you wanted to flip that around and say, you know, CO2 is actually a greenhouse gas, and that it's 0.04% of the atmosphere, there's a reason that they pump CO2 into greenhouses, which is plants grow at 1,000 
to 1,500 parts per million much better than they do at 400 parts per million, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere. Now, if you want to talk about pollutants or things like that, you know, what are a lot of the issues of population collapse that people don't necessarily talk about? Because there's vastly more issues of population collapse than of overpopulation. On the first subject of global warming, I am not a climate scientist. I don't understand climate science, and I am prepared to accept the consensus. Um, but I do think a couple of things need to be said. First of all, that we in the most advanced Western countries have, by adopting the best technology, fantastically reduced our carbon emissions. Now, there may be those who think that carbon emissions are a good thing, global greening, it's greening. I'm aware of all those arguments. That's beyond the scope of me as a demographer. But if you allow for the consensus, the fact is that we have got fantastically better at controlling our emissions. And in Britain, while our population has gone up perhaps 20%, 10-20% over the last 30-40 years, our emissions have fallen dramatically. And that's true of much of the West. And it's actually true even if you adjust for the fact that we've exported a lot of our industry, if you look at it on a consumption basis. So the first thing to say is we're actually very good. If we want to reduce our emissions, we've actually got a proven track record of doing it very well. The second thing is that if you want to reduce your emissions, I think there are much better ways of doing it than not having children. For example, if you have a given population where the average household size is five, it's a much more efficient um, ecology than where it's one, because a household of five is much more efficient, in, has much lower emissions per capita. You know, if you're sitting in a nice warm room with your, with your family, that's actually more efficient than if you're sitting in a nice warm room by yourself. So that's a reason for a given population, at least, living more collectively and more in a, you know, it's an argument for families. Then there's a third thing about the fact that in, in Britain, for example, the, the lowest emissions are from urban areas. So I get lectured sometimes by friends and family who live out in uh, remote regions where they have large, not very well insulated houses, and they drive cars long distances, and they rely on the supply of... Um, uh, energy less effectively because of the lead pylons and so on and petrol and food are all delivered a longer distance if you actually look in britain the lowest emissions are from london where we live in smaller properties better insulated properties we tend to use public transport so actually there are other ways you could improve lowering your emissions than not having children that'd be a more urban population living in larger families they are the least the lowest emitters and i think progress will continue to be made and then finally, I do think that human, you know, if it is a problem and if we do want to reduce our emissions, and I'm prepared to accept that we do, then I think we'll get there by human genius, by young, innovative minds, scientific minds. I have an old and not very scientific mind. It's the young, scientifically literate population which is going to solve the problem. There are a number of answers. Then there's also the angle about, well, I just couldn't bring a child into such a terrible world which is boiling or frying or something. And that, I think, is even more deluded because if you look at infant mortality rates, life expectancy, health, nutrition, on a global basis, I knew there are little blips, like certain communities in America have slightly declining life expectancy, a whole range of reasons for that. But if you look at humanity as a whole, we've never had it so good. If, if conditions are now not good enough to have children, then our parents were crazy to have us. 
and our grandparents are criminals. Now, if you think about the infant mortality rates, the prospect of world war, the sheer poverty that most people lived in. When you bring a child into the world now, you bring a child into a materially much more comfortable, secure world than I was brought into or my parents or my grandparents. I don't think you have to be a in denial about global warming to say that smaller families, fewer children is not the way to go. Your other question is, what's the impact of population decline? A couple of months ago, I came back from South Korea, where the average couple has 0.8 of a child. That means that every cohort is about a little over a third of the size of the last one. So imagine trying to run a school or a business or anything, frankly, the infrastructure. We, we need to invest in a new road or a new electricity supply to an area. Well, actually, in 25 years, the population will have shrunk by two thirds. The whole economic basis of capitalism assumes a rising population. And those who don't like capitalism will say, well, that's capitalism's problem. But I think you'll find in China, as their population falls, their working population falls, just as in the days of the Soviet Union, when they benefited from a surging population, then low fertility meant the population flattened out. All, all the alternatives tried to capitalism equally will have real problems when they don't have enough young people. So the economy will suffer and potentially collapse. The relationship of the state and society changes. So I know America, you have relatively less welfare states than we have. But in Britain, think about it. We have state pensions, which I think you call social security, and we have a national health service. And as you get older, the amount of money spent on the health service dramatically increases. Now, we're having a dramatic increase in the number of people in their 80s and 90s, which is fantastic. My own mother is going to be 90 next week, which is a, a cause of great happiness. But if you haven't got those large numbers of young people coming through, entering the workforce with their creativity, keeping the economy bubbling, paying taxes, the system is not going to keep going. So I think the downsides of a decline in population for a society are enormous. In the book I'm writing at the moment, which has the uncontroversial title, Procreate Will Perish. So I think I'm taking the gloves off on this one. I made the point that there are three cases for having children, the practical, the philosophical, and the personal. So I've talked about the practical. Society is not going to function when the immediate age gets to 50 or 60, which is feasible. And when there's little more than one person of working age for one person of more than working age. So I think there's going to be a terrible set of practical problems, many of which we're all sit already seeing, I think, as society's age. But I think there are also philosophical, religious reasons for having children. And then I also think there are personal reasons. If you actually look at what people say in terms of how many children they want, in most of the West, and increasingly in other parts of the world too, and this is no longer just a Western issue, People say they want more children than they're having. Particularly women. I think we should take very seriously the fact that women are not able to, or not having the number of children they would like to have, normally not for biological reasons. So I think there's a problem in society there. And also, if you look at what people say after they've had their families, would you rather add fewer or more? They invariably say, I wish I'd had more or I'm happy with the number I had. Very few will say. So I think there's a personal satisfaction, which I could talk about eloquently myself, being a parent of three, having recently become a grandparent. 
But the data is more interesting than me, my anecdotes. There is an awful lot of joy in the world that is being sacrificed because we're not having enough children. What countries are most in danger of population collapse? I think for most people, maybe China and Japan come to mind. I believe in your book, you said that about 79,000 people in Japan are 100 years or older, and nearly one-third of their population is over the age of 65, and of course, China with their one-child policy. What matters is how long you've had low fertility rate, how low they've gone, and how fast they've fallen. And then there's the question of immigration. So take a country like the United States. I'm not saying the U.S. doesn't have a problem. It has. You're not having enough kids in the U.S. The U.S. for developed countries had a relatively high fertility rate. It's knocked around the 1.9. Lots of Western countries, Britain and America, it went sub-replacement in 1970, more or less. Early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. But it, it, in the U.S., it hasn't been that low. And the U.S. still an enormous magnet for immigration if you want immigration. Take a country like China. Their fertility rate fell very, very sharply. Actually, in the 70s, before the one-child policy, it halved from six to three. It came down very sharply in the age. Efforts of the government to raise it have been ineffective. So they've actually had quite a long period of below replacement fertility. It's now really low, and it was fairly rapid. And what that means is that they kind of fall off a cliff in terms of working-age population falling. And also, China is not rich enough to attract large numbers of immigrants. It's too big. I mean, if you think the population of China is, what, four times that of the U.S. getting on four, so you'd need to be fearing up vast quantities of people. It doesn't have a huge hinterland, which looks to it as more developed, more advanced, and a desirable place to go. So it can't even turn the immigration tap off. Japan has not got such a low fertility rate, but it's been very, very low for a very, very long time. Obviously, it can attract immigrants because it has got the financial wherewithal to offer them attractive livelihoods, but they're very against it. I haven't been to Japan, but I've been in Korea. And in Korea, they talk very unapologetically about, oh, we want to keep a homogenous society. It's unthinkable to them that they would want a society which is multiracial. For that reason, it's very there is a small immigration in Japan that's quite limited. The countries that have got the biggest problems, because their fertility rates very low and have been for a very long time, are countries in East Asia, and China's a little behind the curve, but we can absolutely see it coming. Countries in East Asia which have the lowest fertility rates in the world, so Korea's 0.8, but Japan's been fairly low for a long time. You know, quite poor countries like Thailand, have got sub-replacement for quite a long time. So it seems to be something cultural in East Asia, which is problematic. And then countries in Southern Europe, like Italy, which have had a very low fertility rate for a long time, a very rapidly aging population, very attractive to people from North Africa, very easy for them to come. And now Italy has elected a populist right-wing government that says it doesn't want immigration. Well, that's fine. Good luck. But they are going to need someone to do the job. And if they're not prepared to have the children themselves, either they'll have to have immigration or they will be in a situation where there's simply not enough labor to go around and you can't get your tap fixed, you can't get your roof repaired. So many services we rely on are very labor intense. And when you simply can't get those services, 
it will start to feel like civilization is collapsing. And when we have old people in their own homes with no one to look after them because they have no children or only one and the child's moved away, and the government could have with the best intentions and all the money in the world, it can't create the people. So there are so many ways in which societies will start to collapse as they age and as their workforces decline. East Asia, South East Asia and, and Southern Europe are the forefront of that. In the West, especially being in the United States, I mean, here in the UK, we always hear about how China is the next superpower. You know, geopoliticist Peter Zeehan basically is not too worried about China. It's recorded that China has 34 million more men than women under the age of 35 due to some of the policies that they've had. What is a country with 30 million more guys? I also read that half the women are sterile, whether they're sterile, their partners are sterile of childbearing age. Is China actually a threat that the mainstream media makes it out to be? Or do you agree with Kitter Z and other demographics just make it nothing to worry about going forward? First of all, I don't know that women in China have particularly a problem with fertility. I'm not aware of that. I would be surprised. In other words, um, when I say fertility there, I mean biologically. In other words, most couples can conceive providing they try uh, before a certain age. Obviously, more and more trying in their 40s, it gets more difficult. My understanding is in China, it's not a biological problem. It's a cultural problem. It's a problem with choice, problem with policy, whatever. It's not biology. In terms of the gender imbalance in China, it's also in Korea and to some extent in India. The reason for that is the introduction of ultrasound. The determination of the baby set 20, 30 years ago was possible. And in societies which are quite patriarchal, lots of people, particularly when they were told they can only have one, said, well, you know, that's a baby girl, we'd better abort her and we'll have another try. Quite apart from that being disgusting, it's also caused great imbalance. Now, one of the problems is that when you look at a fertility rate per woman, and you kind of say, well, 2.1 something per woman means that a man and a woman replace themselves. But if you've got a fewer number, smaller number of women, you actually need a relatively higher fertility rate in order to replace the population. So that's part of the problem. And the peak problem in China is among the um, generation now, the cohort now, which should be having children, say, from the mid-20s to the mid-30s. So that's a problem. It's a problem in a number of countries. Then in terms of the GA strategy, I think we need to be really careful. I'm a demographer. I'm a great believer in demography. I think the way the world pans out will be driven to some extent by demography. But I think it's really difficult to say exactly how. So I think the Chinese policymakers are constrained by demography. They understand what's happening to their country. They've reversed the one-child policy. They may well try in the not-too-distant future to be coercive the other way, which they could do by banning abortions. It wouldn't surprise me. A Marxists are banned. I mean, you think of anti-abortion policies as very right-wing, but that's not true at all. Stalin banned abortions in the 30s. And the, a Ceausescu in communist Romania did so in the 60s. And we may see that in China. And in China, there's almost there's about one, there's more than one abortion, I think, for every birth. The numbers are equivalent. But it, it'll be difficult to do. But I think it could be, it could happen in China. I wouldn't be surprised to see it. 
But the Chinese government understands the constraints it's operating under. It understands the crisis it's heading for. Now, where does that leave it? Do they say, oh my goodness, we've got these domestic problems, we've got this workforce issue, we'd better focus on that? Or do they say, we'd better strike while the iron's hot, we've got lots of young men? As a demographer, I can talk about some of the constraints they're under and some of the frameworks within which they're operating. I admire Peter Zion, I don't know him personally, but I find his podcasts and talks interesting and stimulate, for example, particularly on the subject of what does the world look like if we deglobalize and understanding the demographic constraints in that scenario. But I don't have his confidence in saying A, therefore B. If we want to think about China, we ought to understand the kind of situation it's in demographically, the impact that will have on its economy and is already having on its economy. But I'm not in a position to say, oh, abracadabra, therefore the history of the 2020s is going to be this way or that way. I find it very interesting to speculate, but I don't think I've got any particular crystal ball on how Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership is going to respond to the inevitable problem. Is it, For example, if you look at Europe, I often draw the analogy between Europe in the 1900s and 1910s when Germany could see the looming problem of Russia. And there's no doubt that Russia was industrializing, its population was growing, and Germany's population started to slow down. And there's no doubt this was a really important issue for German policymakers in the first 14 years of the 20th century leading up to the First World War. But I don't think anyone looking at the German government in 1910-1914 could have said, oh, Therefore, when a crisis emerges in the Balkans, they will strike. I, I can't make those sorts of uh, predictions, but I do think China has got some real problems. And from a demographic point of view, which is so fundamental to economics and geostrategy, the US has got some real advantages over China. But I think the US has a lot of problems of, of another nature as well. So I'm sorry, I sound like I'm hedging. I just think demography can get you so far and not necessarily that much further. Dr. Paul Moreland, this is joining us here on L Podcast. How does the demographer actually source their data? In the case of China, they're getting their data from the CCP. Are we even supposed to trust this data? A country like China certainly would have reason to lie about their demographics. Well, I had a great friend, he's no longer with us, called Anthony Smith, who was a, a theorist of nationalism. And he wrote books about nationalism and he would generalize. And sometimes people didn't like that. And they said, well, you don't really understand Estonia, Slovenia, Slovakia. And he would say there is a role for people working in the nationalisms of their particular countries. But surely there is a role also for someone to rise above that and actually make some generalizations about how nationalism works, even if they don't speak Slovakian, Slovenian, Slovenian and Estonian, whatever. And I feel the same with demography. I'm not in the weeds of producing the data. A lot of people have done amazing work on that, particularly in England, funnily enough. Cambridge historians in, from the 1970s done very detailed work on records of parishes and what was actually going on in English and Welsh population at the start of the Industrial Revolution. So, so I take the data that I find. Now, having said that, of course, I need to be aware of its limitation. I said in tomorrow's people that the basic rule is 
the richer the country, the more recent the data, the better you can rely on it. But there's another thing. So, for example, if you're looking at the fertility rate in Niger at the moment, a lot of births in Niger are probably really difficult to record. There's a lot of estimates going on. But the data in Niger is probably better than it was in the 1950s or the 1970s. You have to take it all with a little bit of a pinch of salt and know how much salt, how much of a pinch of salt to use, depending on where it's coming from. But there's another sort of angle as well, which is what motive people have. We can rely on the statistical services of a lot of countries to be completely scientific. I'm not worried about the data coming out of the U.S. I mean, it may be imperfect on occasions, but I don't think it's being cooked by anyone or the UK, or anywhere in the EU, pretty much anywhere in the EU, countries that have got very clear demographic strategies and are not democratic, which is not the same thing, because I think democratic countries should have more demographic strategies. But for countries which have set out goals and are not democratic, I think it's quite easy for, maybe not that easy, but quite likely that they will be cooking the books. So when China was pursuing its one-child policy, it probably wanted to make out that it was being quite successful, and therefore it was producing data on the number of births that was perhaps below reality. Um, It could be today that they see things getting very bad, and they are making it up as they go along, at least to some extent. I have no insight into that. All I can do is take the best data that's available, The UN produces data, the World Bank produces data, and their data gathering experts are better and know more about these issues than I do. And then, as I say, use a little bit of um, scepticism, depending where the data is coming from and historically when from. As a demographer, we can give a lot of insights that the average person doesn't have. I think the mainstream view is that the US is going to be really multicultural you know, saying 2100, but then you talk about there's only two states in the United States that actually have a birth rate above the 2.1 replacement level, that's South Dakota and Utah. And then you mentioned there's a couple other enclaves in the U.S., such as the Jewish population, I think the Orthodox Jews and, and New York, and then as well as the Amish. And actually, those rates continue, and the U.S. could actually be more, quote-unquote, white and 2100 that it is now, which I think if you were to tell that to the average American, they would think that's crazy. But yeah, data and statistics to actually back this information. Well, well, that's a point in history. We know there's something called the demographic transition, which is you get rich, you get urban, you get educated, and your fertility rate comes down. And therefore, the most educated, wealthy, and urban population, the first to make that transition, which were mostly people of European extraction, were the first into that. And therefore, we've been living through an era when the association is that people of European extraction have very low fertility rates and people from other parts of the world have much higher fertility rates. And that is true broadly, but we can actually see that changing before our eyes. We can see, for example, as I've said, the lowest fertility rates being in East Asia. Um, huge, for obviously, China's still got a huge population and will have for a very long time. But we can see East Asians have adopted late fertility in a way we would once have been surprised, just as people in Northern Europe were surprised when people in Southern Europe, Catholics in Spain and Italy, started having very small families. We can see that when immigrants go to low-fertility countries, 
they tend to live in towns and they tend to adopt the urban practices of the countries that they've arrived in. So typically a Latino in the US lives in one of the big cities and the Latino fertility rate has fallen very rapidly towards the norm for US big cities. And of course, the fertility rate in much of Latin America has fallen very fast as well, not least in Mexico. So both the countries they're coming from and the countries they're going to are moving to low fertility. So it's unsurprising that these immigrant groups have quite rapidly falling fertility. In England, for example, our Hindu and our Sikh communities do not have a higher fertility rate than our population as a whole. And that shouldn't surprise us because a large part of India have a replacement rate, a fertility rate, sub-replacement, and quite similar to the UK. Just as there was with the Malthusian debate, there's an adjustment. Our mindset is set by the past. And we haven't caught up with what's going on. So that's true in questions of race, ethnicity, and fertility. The other thing is that who has got through development? Who has got through to the point where everyone's literate, lots of women have gone to university, people are relatively wealthy? Who's gone through that and not had a collapse in their fertility rate? And the answer is almost exclusively religious groups, certain sorts of religious groups. In the US, you see people like the Amish. It has been true of the Mormons, although it's less true of the Mormons than it was, of the Hutterites and the Haredi Jews. These are communities which have, you could say they're not immersed in modernity, but they're existing in the 2020s, and they are still having a high fertility rate. And that's something which we haven't seen in groups, say, of Latinos living in the US yet. I'm not saying it can't happen. So it seems that just as, as people of European extraction were the first into the demographic transition, the first with low fertility rates, so as they've been in it for a long time, we're starting to see emerge strategies, if you like, whether they're as conscious, so conscious that you can call them strategies, ways of life, the, whether it's and it's okay, the, the religious groups have got high fertility rate, but it is interesting that the fertility rate in Montana, say, is much higher than in Vermont. There's also a political angle. The more conservative groups tend to have a higher fertility rate, even if you control for religion. You can begin to see the emergence of a more rural population having a higher fertility rate, a more religious population having a higher fertility rate. The fertility rate in America, between the gap between whites and others, has hugely narrowed. Therefore, the sort of expectation, well, not only do immigrants come, but they have ever higher, larger and larger families, is just not true. And that's partly a problem, because what that means is when we get immigrants, the immigrants will age, and they won't necessarily replace themselves either. And so what you need is ever larger numbers of immigrants to cope with your aging population. As I said, our mindset in all of these issues tends to lag reality. And I hope what I'm doing is catching people up a little bit. I think the, the mainstream view is that in 2023 is that there's these, are these massive amounts of people globally that are starving. And I find this one of the more interesting tidbits from your book. And you say, quote, 
By 2007, the number of overweight people in the world outnumbered the hungry. And in some parts of the world, overeating is a pandemic that has serious implications for health and longevity. End of quote. Can you talk about the paradox of this overfed, underfed in the 21st century? First of all, you've got to understand that we've had a fantastic growth in our agricultural output. Some people may say, oh, it's come at the cost of too much of this and too little of that, and the soils and that. And I'm not denying that, but I'm sure there will be ways of solving that. And there's amazing technology going on in terms of cultivating artificial meats and milk and using the seeds. There's some extraordinary technology which could transform it even more. Um, and all that, while our population growth gets lower and lower every year, so population's growing really slowly, and then our ability to feed ourselves has transformed itself in conventional ways. Just the conventional agricultural yield have grown enormously this century. And then there's all this amazing technology down the road. So as a species, we will have no problem feeding ourselves. We already are quite capable of feeding ourselves from what we produce today. That's the sort of dem demography of, of, of the Malthus turned on his head, if you like. The problem of overeating and eating unhealthily and obesity is not strictly a demographic problem, but I use it to illustrate the idea that there are more and more of us and we're running out of food is just completely wrong. I mean, even somewhere like Gaza, um, which is sort of touted as this desperate, miserable place. Uh, there are three or four obese people for every... I mean, tons of food come into Gaza every day. Anyone who follows things in the Middle East knows that. This is, this is just sort of propaganda and noise. There's massively more obesity even in Gaza than people underweight. But the question of obesity per se is not a demographic problem. I'm simply pointing out that it's an illustration of the fact that we have plenty of food in the world. Now, I'm not being complacent. Of course, there are people in the world who are hungry. Their numbers come down enormously. Obviously, a crisis like Ukraine, the rising price of grain, no one says it's going to go, only go down one way and that it's guaranteed and you don't have to do anything. But the fact is that our system has produced fantastically more food than anyone could have imagined. And the direction of travel is pretty obvious, that we are possibly on the cusp of extraordinary gains in agricultural technology. We have a very slow growth in population. And the whole question of feeding the world is less and less one about how to prevent starvation, which is a classic Malthusian problem, if you like, and more and more one that moves out of the demographic realm into health and giving people the sort of advice they need to eat healthily, which, as I say, is beyond the scope of and how they control their appetites and so on. Be somewhat beyond the scope of what I do. And you're, well, in your conclusion, you talked about the trilemma. And basically, you say that. The developed world is facing a demographic trilemma where it can only choose two out of three options, and those three options are basically economic growth, cultural consistency, or personal fulfillment. You have this quote in your, your book that I found quite interesting, and you say, quote, Japan is full of women who are fulfilled, neither as mothers nor as workers. It is no wonder that the Japanese are among the least happy people in, in the developed world, despite their comfort, fluence, and country's lack of crime. And of course, most people would probably find it interesting to hear that people in Japan maybe find themselves to be not the happiest people in the world. You also mentioned 
in the book, South Korea has the highest rate of suicide in the world. I, I lived in, in South Korea, you know, and did taught English there. And but certainly not something that the yeah, typical outsider would expect to hear. I, I, I have a huge respect for Japan and Korea and all that they've achieved. I think we must never lose sight of that, their economic miracles. I come from this from a fundamentally pronatalist point of view. I talk about egotism in the book. And I think you need to sacrifice your egotism to have a family. But that doesn't mean that you're sacrificing self-fulfillment. On the contrary, I think that's the ultimate fulfillment is to have a family. So to talk about the trilemma, I talk about two things you can have out of three. Economic dynamism, the egotism of a small family, and what I call ethno-continuity. And the reason I do that is because a lot of people say, for example, in Britain and maybe in America, they're just saying, oh, why do we have so much immigration? Must be some conspiracy or something. But it's not. It's fundamental to the way that we've shaped our societies. And if you want to be like Britain and have a, at least try to have a functioning buoyant economy, which we're not very good at, but it, it just about drags along. And you don't want large families. You're not prepared to have children. You've got to import your labor. And you will have mass immigration and rapid ethnic change. You can like it, you can hate it, but understand that it's a result of your choice, that you want jobs done and you're not prepared to fulfill the requirement of, of those workers by having your age The second model is Japan, where you say we couldn't possibly countenance mass immigration and we want Japan to remain ethnically Japanese. We don't understand the idea of Japan being any other. And then you will have real economic problems. Now, Japan's got the biggest debt to GDP in the developed world, like 250, 60%. They have an economy which was once the envy of the world and is now a bit of a basket case. It grows. Look, lots of things work well in Japan, but economically, Japan has shrunk and shriveled and is not as relevant, anything like as relevant as it was 30 or 40 years ago. It looked like the future was Japanese, the Japanese economy. The stock market has really declined enormously since the late 80s. And the third model is Israel, where they do have, as a developed country, the only developed country, to have a properly above-replacement fertility rate. And that means that they can have a buoyant economy. And although they have had large immigration in the past, they have much lower immigration now, and they don't need immigration because they've got a fresh inflow into the workforce every year. Understanding those trades of that, I'm almost finished an article which should be published in the next month or two. Well, I've worked with an uh, economist called Philip Pilkington, and we've quantified that. We've said, well, look at the UK. If we stopped immigration now and we didn't raise our fertility rate, how bad would our dependency ratio get? How Japan-like would we get and how quickly? Or if we said we're going to keep our fertility rate where it is today, we won't have more children, but we want to maintain our dependency ratio in our economy. Just how much immigration would we need and how much ethnic change would we have? And if we don't want to have massive immigration forever, and if we want a buoyant economy, just how high must our fertility rate get? So we've actually quantified those things and we'll be publishing on that quite soon. But I think the reason that trilemma is useful is because, first of all, I think it is a repost to people who have conspiracy theories about ethnic change in our societies. And secondly... Because I think as societies, we've got to make these choices. We always make better choices if we do so in an informed way. And if people understand it, they have a dialogue about it. Their politicians understand it. 
then we can say, okay, dear America, if you want to build a wall and you don't want immigration flows and you want to keep the lights on, we're going to have to get our fertility rate up from, say, 1.6 to 2.6. Now, how are we going to do that as a society? Is that a role for the government? Is that a role for society? Is it about the churches? Or what are the lessons we can learn from religious groups or other groups that have high fertility rate? Or if you say, well, actually, America should be a truly multiracial, multinational country. That's its origin. Yes, it was at one point it was mass immigration from Northwest Europe, then it came from South and East Europe, and that's coming from the world. And that's America's secret recipe. And we should be going for a billion people that have, you know, that we don't need a higher fertility rate. Or you could say, let's try and do what the Japanese have done. We won't raise our fertility rate. We don't want immigration. We're going to put a lot of money and capital into trying to find solutions, technological solutions, which I'm skeptical of, to be honest. But I think people have a much more informed decision if they understand the actual trade-offs that they're facing. In your book, you basically say it's a lot easier to get people to have less kids than to get families to have more kids. And I was watching a, a quite lively conversation with you in a, in a previous video maybe a year ago where you said that couples that do not have kids should be taxed. But what are some of those the solutions to actually getting couples to have more children or even maybe having a child, a child one child? But I mean, certainly, what is the solution for getting couples to have one, two, three, three four children? There's no easy answer to it. Um, it does seem to be a feature of modern societies that fertility goes down. I mean, who wouldn't want it to go down from six or seven to two or three? Particularly as children survive, survival rates are much higher. The problem is when it goes below two, below one, how we actually combat that. Now, the problem is, although it's a characteristic of a lot of the developed world, it's very, it varies in different places, and I think the reasons probably vary in different places. So I doubt there is one set of policy which can address the problem universally. Different countries have tried different things. Hungary, for example, has tried giving baby bonuses. So when you have a child, particularly a third child, you get a certain amount of money, you get assistance in buying a house. Other countries have tried tax cuts. It's a complicated thing, partly because circumstances vary between countries and partly because when you introduce a new policy, it's very hard to say what's causing what. And that's true of all policies. So, yes, there's been a bit of an uptick in Hungary. Was it really due to the policies or was it due to other factors, maybe economic, maybe technical things in demography like the tempo of it? I do think that the first step is to acknowledge the problem. And then to ask what we can do about it, to look at best practice, to look at what's been adopted, what might work, try different approaches. But you, you won't even get off on the first base if you don't acknowledge that the problem is too few children and that it's contagious and that it's damaging and it's a long-term problem that now is, is many ways too late to start addressing it, but better address it now than in 20 years' time. And the the, the the, the point about tax is a lot of countries have got tax breaks for parents. And what I was saying in that article, which did get a lot of publicity just over a year ago, is if we're short of money, if we can't afford to give tax breaks to um, people having children, 
we can vary the tax rate and just have a higher tax for people who don't have them. Now, is tax the answer? Not necessarily. It can be part of a package. I'm arguing that part of that package is variable tax rates for parents and non-parents, which you get in perfectly democratic and respectable countries already, like France, as well as in communist Cuba, for example, as well as you had in the Soviet Union. So it's not just a sort of right-wing, crazy right-wing idea to vary the tax rate, as well as the benefit rate. And some people say it has all sorts of practical problems, but in the UK we have something called child benefit, which we basically had since 1945. And there's no reason why we shouldn't have it in the tax system as well. It's certainly worth considering where you set those bounds. That's a question for fiscal policy. But I think even to start the conversation going, the first thing is to acknowledge we have a problem. Now, some governments do. So Hungary famously says, yes, we want more children. In France, there are pronatal policies which pretty much are acknowledged as being to grow family sizes. Um, some countries in the EU, like Latvia, I was reading the other day, have, have, have set goals of raising their fertility rate. The first thing is to have a, to, you know, if we're talking about policy and government, is for governments to acknowledge this is an issue and then to look at the different policies you can have, helping young families get started, giving tax breaks. Um, really important is childcare. So we know as women get more educated um, and, and we've had a huge rise in women attending university and so they want careers, which is excellent and to be encouraged. How do you combine that with a family? Can the state do things to help um, in terms of paternity and maternity leave, your rights, your payment jury and childcare? The other thing you mustn't lose sight of, you don't lose sight of it in the US, but we really tend to in Europe and elsewhere is we tend to feel there's a problem, there must be a government solution. And I'm not a libertarian, and I do think government has a role to play. But ultimately, this is a social problem. Society's got to sort it out, whether it's religious groups, whether it's some cultural movements, whatever it is. I just don't think government has all the answers, and I doubt that it's simply going to be something the government can do. Government's going to be part of the solution, but it's not necessarily going to be a very large part of the solution. As I point out, for example, where childcare is really cheap, like German, or housing is cheap, as in parts of the UK, you still don't get a high fertility rate. It's a more profound cultural issue than a set of economic issues which the government can magic away. In your book, you mentioned that fertility is linked to attitudes, ideology, and religion, and nowhere does you say government to that sentence. Yeah, and it's true that some of the... I mean, Israel... For example, they really are big in IVF. So if you want IVF, you can have it forever in Israel, or as many cycles as you want. And that doesn't make that much difference because most people don't need IVF. Paternity, maternity leave, child benefits, not that great. And in the US, which has been for much of the last three, four, five decades, one of the higher fertility countries in the developed world, you haven't got great provision. I mean, you don't have paid... You've got, I think, 12 weeks right to maternity leave, but it's not guaranteed to be paid on it by the exchange. It may be a good thing or a bad thing. You can have that debate, but I don't think it's going to make that much difference. It's really ultimately about attitudes, about culture, about priorities. And that's what's going to... And, and you'll have a lot of people saying, making very passionate arguments in favour of paid rights to maternity leave, and I've got no problem with that. And I can support that. 
And you've got a lot of people making passionate arguments in favor of helping with housing and or with IVF. All of these things I've got no problem with. I just think we mustn't delude ourselves that there's a policy silver bullet and that the government can solve it all. If the background culture priorities is such that people actually are not that interested in having children. And ultimately, however much I preach and rant, I'm not going to make much difference. If societies like the Italians are not interested in reproducing themselves, then there will be no Italy as we've understood it and no Italians in 300 years, which I think would be a tragedy, but it's up to them really. My previous company that I worked at, I worked at a media company and we had this round table panel on population toxicity. And for those that are listening, I have that in, in air quotes. And we had three people on the panel plus the host and all three of the people on the panel were basically saying that we needed to have a population reduction. And the, the main reason that they cite is climate. But then when you ask them, like, how do we have these population reduction policies that are all very extreme, pretty acidite. And then, of course, the host asked each panelist if they had kids. And every panelist had kids. Some of them had like three or four kids, well above the replacement rate. And it's just like the hypocrisy. It's easy to pass these policies if you think that's the case, but it's not like no one wants to pass policies on themselves or their own family. If, if, if you take that line of thought that the Earth is overpopulated. I mean, first off, what do you think the carrying capacity is? If you wanted to go with that train of thought, is there even any sensible way to even have policies? The carrying capacity is a very slippery concept, and I'm skeptical of it. So, at the technology of 1800, there's no way that the carrying capacity of the Earth was 8 billion people. And in indeed, Malthus. I mean, the inside of Malthus is in a sense that the world's population bangs up against its carrying capacity. Well, that was the case before we could control our own fertility. So the carrying capacity of the world um, has changed as technology advances. So, you know, the fact that we've got much better solar power now, cheaper, the fact that we can desalinate water, it's still quite expensive, but it's getting cheaper and cheaper. We're getting better and better at it. So one of the great constraints on the carrying capacity of the world was fresh water. Well, we can now desalinate. Now, that doesn't mean desalination is free and that doesn't raise its own problems and no doubt we'll solve those in due course. I'm just dubious about the carrying The carrying capacity of the world was much lower before the Harper-Bosch process. And the carrying capacity of the world then rose and it was raised again by the Green Revolution in the 60s. So it's all a lot, a lot to do with technology and human ingenuity. So this is, gets back to the sort of Julian Simon stuff that I'm quite keen on, that the brain is the ultimate resource. Um, the second thing I'd say is that if you want to reduce the population of the world without kind of going around killing people or some pandemic, then you have to have very low fertility and rapid aging and all the problems we've talked about, the lack of taxpayers or just people to support and look after the elderly. A burgeoning elderly population is not a good thing. So to get there naturally is very painful and very difficult. And we're going to see that more and more in the world. And then the kind of policies to enforce it, well, Unfortunately, in a lot of the world, you don't need policies to enforce it because it seems to be happening quite naturally, like in South Korea, which I regret, and I'm more interested in policies to 
reverse it. But ultimately, if you want to lower the fertility rate, we know there are coercive policies such as were executed in the one-child policy in China. Now, a lot of bullying and unpleasantness, and ultimately, probably, women being, or there are stories of women having um, uh, abortions forced on them, which is about as horrendous as I can imagine. Pharaoh was casting every other Israelite into the River Nile. They perhaps some of your antinatalists in America have a use for the Mississippi. I don't know. I mean, the mind boggles, frankly. But uh, unfortunately, you don't need those policies to have very low fertility rates in much of the world. The question really is, can we all agree? And I think we're a long way from agreeing it, that the problem is too few people, particularly too few children, not too many. And then what are we going to do about it? What does an aging U.S. population mean for investors and entrepreneurs? How best to capitalize on these changing dynamics in the U.S.? A general challenge for investors from a supply and demand point of view, the supply problem is that more and more capital in an aging society is looking for a very safe home. One of the great things about the U.S. economy has been its venture capital and its private equity businesses and markets. And um, a very old society doesn't want to invest. You know, it's not wise to invest in a startup if you've got a limited pot of capital, whether you're running it yourself or through what we call the defined benefit scheme in the U.K. An old population will gravitate its capital towards the safest houses, which often means actually government bonds. So you're actually relying more and more, you're saying, hey, dear government, please take our money and offer us something minimal in return, and you figure out how to invest it. And that's not really going to lead to a very dynamic economy. The other problem is that a, a lack of young people, as I've said already, is not good for investment innovation and the kind of startups which have really fueled the growth and change in our economies for the last 100, maybe 200 years. So where are the opportunities? Nevertheless, despite that, there are pretty obvious ones. I've advised a company which helps UK expats living in Spain, Portugal and France. We don't have a Florida in Britain. Brits tend to go to the sunnier parts of Europe to retire. And if you look at that population, of course, it's been affected by Brexit less than you would expect. But actually understanding the shape of that population and understanding that the peak year of, of births in the UK was 1964, which actually was when I was born. And I'm 58 now. It's a very large cohort coming through. What can you do with that cohort? White, prosperous, very large cohort. What are they going to do? They're going to want cruises. They're going to want retirement homes eventually. They might want second homes in sunnier parts of Europe. So there's a, a lot of leisure um, and money heading in that direction. Now, in the US, your um, baby boom was slightly earlier than ours, and I think it peaked in the late 50s. So slightly different shape. But obviously, more and more uh, money spend is going to be in the hands of um, newly retired people, and they do tend to spend quite a lot of money. The classic pattern is you spend um, early on in your retirement on um, the good things in life, and then later on you stay at home and eventually you need care. Um, so those are the obvious things, um, and there's less and less to be um, invested in things for young people. It's a rather depressing scenario 
Um, we know in the UK, I think I mentioned in the book, a lot of nightclubs have shut down. Um, New Musical Express, a very popular youth journal, has shut down. Uh, the music journal, and, you know, all things I'm particularly interested in, but people my generation were consuming those on that. And as there are fewer and fewer people of younger ages, the, the, the economy shifts, and it shifts towards the needs of older people. That's a kind of obvious point in terms of where you would be investing. Today's guest is Dr. Paul Moreland, who's the author of the book, Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity in Ten Numbers. So, Paul, I have two kind of final questions for you. One is just where can people find you, get a hold of your book, you find uh, some of your podcasts, things like that. And then secondly, what are your final thoughts, parting thoughts, conclusion that you want to leave the listening and the viewing audience with? In terms of finding me, if you put my name into Google, or probably most search engines, you'll find my home site. I've got a website. And on that website, there are links to my books. Um, there are three and a fourth will follow. Um, there are links to all my podcasts, newspaper articles. So um, just put me in and you'll find Moreland Demography and everything's there if you're interested. And in terms of my parting shots, I would say what I said at the end of my TEDx talk in Vienna, that if you understand demography, I've said it already today, it doesn't give you a precise map of the way the world is going to shape out. And it's not the only guide to history. But if you want to understand how we've got where we are and where we're going, if you want to frame the question and ask them in an intelligent way and understand the context in, in which the future is going to pan out, I can't think of a better way of doing so than understanding the basic, fundamental, demographic dynamics which have shaped our past how are going to shape our future? When people find out you're a demographer and you meet someone new, are they pretty surprised to hear that you believe that population collapse is a bigger issue than overpopulation? I think five or six years ago, it was more of a shock factor. Now, people starting to hear things like, ooh, we're very short of labor. China's got, China's population's smaller than India's. Goodness, is that true that a couple in career on average have only 0.8 jobs? So I think some of the, I think these stories are starting to filter through and we are starting to get a change in consciousness. And then what is the name of your the book again that you're currently writing and then when will that be published? I've almost finished it. I'm working on chapter 14 and 14 at the moment. I have a contract with a publisher. The title is Procreate or Perish. So it's, it's going to contain what you see on the tin, as it were. And I don't know, publishers can take longer to publish books than you expect. I would like it to be published in 2024. So today's guest, once again, is Dr. Paul Morla, the author of Tomorrow's People, The Future of Humanity in 10 Numbers. And I hope, Paul, that once you release the book, Procreate or Pairs, that you can join us again. But I just want to say thank you so much for spending time with us today. And I really enjoyed your insights. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk. My dear friends, that is it for this episode of El Podcast. Once again, if you're not yet subscribed, please subscribe on YouTube as well as Rumble. You can also find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. 
We thank you all from the bottom of our hearts for watching and listening, and we will see you on the next episode.